Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels and couches. When the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, do they in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. And when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man that defiles a man for, 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 from what comes out of a man defiles a, that defiles a man for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications murders thefts covetousness wickedness deceit lewdness an evil eye blasphemy pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and defile a man may God bless the reading of his word and let's pray once more Lord God, thank you for this passage that we have read here in Mark's Gospel. We pray that you would grant us incredible understanding of it. We pray that whether we've read Matthew's uh, complimentary re recording of this account or whether we've read this many times and know it well, we pray that you would help us to see new and wonderful things about yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before I get into the sermon transcript itself for today, I, I just want to make uh, two quick comments. The first comment is, you might notice here a few things that are happening in Mark's Gospel that I'm not going to touch on. Uh, one of those, uh, if you look at the Old Testament law, the, we could break the law down into both civil, seral, uh, civil, ceremonial and moral law. What happens here, Christ seems to be saying that the time for the ceremonial law is coming to an end. Now, I did originally include that stuff in the sermon for today, but the sermon ended up being over an hour. So I thought I'll save you from that today. But it's worth looking into. Another point to make is that 
a lot of what we see at the end here about what comes out of man defiles him. We could have spent a lot of time on that. Uh, we're probably trying to spend about equal time on both the tradition side of it and the unclean side of it. I have preached through this in Matthew 15 when I preached on that. I hope and pray that those sermons complement each other, don't contradict each other. There's a lot to get through here, so I've tried to deal with this as best I can while maintaining the balance that Mark seems to have. So if you'd like to hear more about that stuff, there is a sermon on Sermon Audio from Matthew 15 I preached on, which is Matthew's recording of this account. So those things out of the way. We are finally in the seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel. Uh, For a few weeks now, we've been camped out in Mark chapter 6. And working through Mark 6, we see, as we do with the whole Gospel, we see really amazing things as Christians living on this side of the cross. We see so many divine acts of Christ that prove to us that He is God. We see that no weather, no lack of food, no lack of boat, no murder of godly men are obstacles to Christ and the Father's will coming to fruition whatsoever. Now, what we haven't seen for some time in Mark's Gospel is confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. Today, we are back to that sort of encounter, though, where this week we see the Pharisees and the scribes, that they head out from Jerusalem, they want to keep an eye on Jesus, so they head out to where he is, some of them head out with the scribes, and Jesus is once again accused of being dodgy. Not Jesus himself, but his followers are accused of being dodgy, And if Jesus' followers are dodgy, he must be dodgy too, is a logic that's used by the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, what's the grounds for this claim, maybe Pharisees and scribes? Well, the the grounds for the claim today are that Jesus was unclean and his disciples were unclean because they didn't wash their hands the right way. Over the last two years, we've heard an awful lot about hand washing, haven't we? Do you know, I turn this off on my Apple Watch, but there are settings on smartwatches that tell you whether you've washed your hands for long enough and well enough. I turn that off because I don't need my watch to condescend to me. And we, we hear all about hand washing. It's not just good hygiene for us, it affects the people we have contact with as well. If we don't wash our hands, we spread germs, it's not bad, it's not just about us, it's about the people around us as well. Washing our hands is just basic good hygiene. Now, we don't know exactly what steps have been missed out here by the disciples. Maybe all the steps of hand washing have been missed by Jesus' disciples here. But we know that hand washing the right way wasn't quite happening. Now, we don't know whether that's because they didn't wash their hands at all or if they didn't follow the full form of hand washing laid down. Verse 3 explains to us that there was a special way of washing hands that was meant to happen. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what that is, but if you're interested in finding out more, uh, two pieces of writing from the Hebrews, the Mishnah and the Talmud, they will fill you in on exactly what it involved. But in short, water was to be applied to the hands, and not just touch the hands, thoroughly applied to the hands at least twice. We see there bowls, cups, those sorts of things, even couches had to be washed, A bowl was washed in the the Jewish houses both before and after eating, every single time. There were traditions set down of good hygiene that were meant to be followed. 
but it wasn't happening. We don't know whether they were ravenous or what was going on, whether they just saw food, manners went out the window and they decided they just had to eat right then and there because they were famished, but hand washing the right way was not happening. Now, for us reading this today, we might think this is a bit of a stretch to go straight from Jesus, your, your buddies, your followers, they didn't wash your hands to because they didn't wash their hands, they are unclean and unworthy before a holy God. And Jesus, if you yourself, if you were God, which is the underlying part of the accusation, which is left hanging by the Pharisees and the scribes, if you really were God, let alone a good teacher, let alone a good man, you would know this and you would have told these people this and you would have walked out of dinner with these disgusting, unclean, uncultured, uncouth people and had nothing more to do with them. As soon as their habits became known, you would have left. Sounds like that old saying of cleanliness is next to godliness, doesn't it? Now we might look at that and go, wow, that is a stretch because this isn't stuff that we converse with on a daily basis. Now, there's an aspect to what the Pharisees are saying which you go, okay, hand-washing is good. Let alone the fact that there are principles within the Old Testament of hand-washing. We see that even with Elijah and Elisha and how they interact with one another. Hand-washing is good. If something is laid out as a good and a godly practice, we should follow those things. Maybe there's some space for improvement with Jesus' disciples. And if they're passing food around the table, I certainly hope if I was having dinner with them that they would wash their hands. We've got some space for improvement there, just in manners. But what the scribes and the Pharisees go on to say at the end of verse 5 reveals to us a lot more about why they're upset about this. Jesus, these guys aren't washing their hands, and in not washing their hands, you notice what they're upset about being broken? It's not God's law. It's the tradition of the elders. They are not keeping the tradition of the elders. Those traditions, as much, if not more than anything else, were what were keeping these guys who are attacking Jesus through this as authoritative people in Israel. And this seems to be the source of their upset. Now, as we see moving through this passage, Jesus is not only fully aware of the source of their upsetness, he's also fully aware that it's hypocritical. Verse 6, Jesus calls them hypocrites to their very faces. He said, oh, can I just a little bit, paraphrase a little bit. You remember all the stuff that Isaiah the prophet wrote about? About people who, who pretend that tradition being done over and over and over again is the same as a vibrant walk in faithfulness with God? You know how silly that line of thought is? How hypocritical that line of thought is? You guys, you've probably criticized it yourself in your teachings. Well, you know what? You are actually the hypocrites that Isaiah was talking about. And Jesus gives an example, a big example of their hypocrisy. Now, this isn't the only area where these people are being hypocritical. If we read the end of verse 13, Jesus says, and many such things you do, but he just picks one in particular. This big example of hypocrisy. Now, all of this, we have to remember, flows on from the accusation that Jesus and his disciples were unclean because of hand washing or lack of hand washing. You were disgustingly sinful people because you didn't wash your hands the right way. 
Jesus is not responding to an attack on himself by going on the attack and just picking a random issue to avoid problems within his own camp. Verse 14 to 23, Jesus returns to the issue of hand washing. But this emphasis on hypocrisy is needed and it's important. Now, before we go into what Jesus says, particularly from verse uh, verse 6 through 13, Jesus' response here, he begins by calling them hypocrites, is one which is of a confronting nature and is a nature of which I think in the church today and from people outside of the church looking in at what Christians are meant to look like is terribly missed or misunderstood. Now, what I mean by that is love your neighbour as yourself. That's one of the great commands. The world looks at Christians and says, that command, love your neighbour as yourself. You guys are all meant to be puppy dog-like people, aren't you? Just roll over, anything comes up. Don't have a backbone. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you wouldn't want to be criticised, don't criticise somebody else. Don't call somebody a hypocrite, that's not right. Now, on Wednesday night at Bible study, I mentioned a few times, at least four or five times, the idea of, of Christians, of us, and encouraged us to be winsome in responding to questions and confusions about what it is to be a Christian. When we look at what Jesus does here, it might not seem winsome. It might seem unnecessarily argumentative. Now, what I didn't say on Wednesday night, because I was saving it for right now, is that while we should be winsome in our attitude, where are we told to be tolerant of sin? Jesus is addressing sin here. Where are we told to be tolerant of sin? A few places we could look to. We could look to journalists. We could look to journalists. We can look at the things that happen with the so-called inclusive pride jersey that Manly wore in the Rugby League on Thursday night. And the world says, just be tolerant. Put on that misused, not quite seven-colour rainbow flag, just wear it. If you're refusing to wear it for religious grounds, just be tolerant. So we hear journalists tell us, be tolerant. People who force their different ideologies on us, they tell us to be tolerant of their sin. We find the word tolerant thrown around a lot, but you know where we don't see it? When it comes to sin, we don't see it in the Bible. Never once in Scripture are Christians told to be tolerant of sin. Micah 6, 8, What does the Lord require of you, O man, but to seek justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God? Justice takes a stand against those things that are wrong. If it didn't, it would not be justice. It simply wouldn't. Yes, we should love our neighbour as ourselves. Yes, we should see that each, each person has been created in the image of God and we should treat all people with the dignity that's according to that. But there is a far cry between that and tolerantly accepting sin. And Jesus shows us and models that for us here in Mark 7. There are times, not every time, but there will be times where we need to confront issues as directly as possible. And the sin being confronted here is that of tradition being elevated above what is pleasing to God, above God's commands and being told, just hang on to tradition, minimise God's word, 
Minimize the Ten Commandments as long as you have tradition, you're okay. And that is wrong. That is saying man's logic is better than God's logic. Man's logic here, God's logic here, and we're okay with that. In fact, we encourage you to adopt that yourself. Tradition has overtaken the teaching of God. Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes, if you have a problem with a lack of full hand washing, maybe a lack of hand washing at all, why don't you try and be consistent? He says, what's the fifth commandment? What's Moses said this commandment is? To honour your father and your mother. Now, that's the beginning of it. It's the longest commandment. It's the only commandment we see with a promise attached to it. But that's the beginning of it that Jesus reminds them of, draws to mind the whole commandment. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And then verses 9 to 13, Jesus goes on to point out that not only this is the direct commandment given by God through Moses to people, he shows them how they are actively encouraging and enabling people to despise God's own law. They despise God's law but get upset because hands weren't washed. You see, they're allowing people to dishonour their parents, saying, kids of parents, you have a responsibility to honour, to look after, to provide for your parents when they cannot look after themselves. That might seem a little bit restrictive. Maybe you'd like a little bit more money to spend right now. So what we're going to do, we'll set this thing up. There's this thing called Corbin, which is a gift to God, which could be used legitimately by some people. But we're going to use this and we're going to spin it. They say, you guys, you can go out and you can spend money or you can sell things and you can make a profit. And if you say the profit from that is Corbin, you no longer have to look after your parents with that. We have a loophole. We have a loophole to one of the Ten Commandments. How good is this? This is what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They're upset by a lack of hand washing while they're actively encouraging a breaking of the fifth commandment. You want hypocrisy? This is hypocrisy. You really want to get upset about hand-washing, but enable that? Get real. And we can do the same thing today. I spoke about it in the kids' talk. You've got to sing happy birthday at the right time. Otherwise, you've ruined the birthday. There's so many ways tradition can take over. What if we sang three, not four songs? What if we sang five songs, not four songs? No, four's a number. Four's the number of songs we sing here, that's what we're going to sing. What if maybe we don't have a good enough balance of older and newer songs? And by the way, these are things that I've asked other pastors about, and these are some of the top things that tradition seems to get in the way of. We didn't have a good enough balance of older and newer songs. We only have one scripture reading, not two scripture readings. Maybe there's not a kid's talk. Maybe someone walks in and you don't think they're dressed nicely enough. And my personal favourite as a pastor, the sermon was either too long or too short, not based on exegetical quality or usefulness for living in holiness, but based on how long we think a sermon should go for. These are just some of the ways tradition can creep in, even in a church trying to be faithful. 
And when they creep in, they can take a foothold and we can elevate these lines of thought to be more important than real faithfulness to God. Now, don't get me wrong. All those things I spoke about there, especially the happy birthday part, they are important. They are important. And we should have discussions. And if you think these things aren't being done well, we want to have a discussion about it. I'm not trying to shut that down. But are they the most important thing? No. God's law matters far more. That's what matters more. This is what Jesus is explaining to the people. And we can't think these are the only people who would ever be hypocrites in history. No, we ourselves need to challenge our own hearts in response to these things, both in the church, in family life, in so many areas of our life. Now, after Jesus does this, he circles back, as I said, from verse 14 onwards to where the confrontation began. He gets back to hand washing. As I said, I have preached on Matthew's recording of this from Matthew 15. Say more about the, the cleanliness and defilement that, that accompanies there. But we will talk about it now. Also, as a point I made when I did preach on Matthew 15, wash your hands. What Jesus says here is not an excuse to not wash your hands. What Jesus says here about food going into your stomach, not your heart, is not an excuse to gorge yourself on McDonald's. Don't misapply, don't misread what Jesus says here. Again, please wash your hands. Not washing your hands is gross. Wash your hands. But Jesus takes us to the spiritual significance of what's going on here, of not just the external hygiene we practice every day, hopefully. He goes to the spiritual, what's going on in our hearts. And it's with this view to spiritual things that Jesus says, there's no food we eat that's going to defile us. Now, there is, of course, a difference between eating food and gluttony. That's not the issue here. That's, just, that's another topic Jesus will we'll talk about another time. But what we eat in and of itself is not going to defile us before God. Now, that statement that Jesus goes on to talk about there, that is a loaded statement because remember the timeline of Scripture. This is before, this is before Peter had the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven with all those bacon-containing animals and lovely foods. This is before that happened. In some ways, it's a very, very provocative thing for Jesus to be saying right now. But nothing you eat in of itself will defile you before God. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus has drawn the crowd in to hear that final part. To hear that it's not the things that enter from outside that defile a man, but the things that come out of him. Those things defile a man. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he goes into a nearby house. In verse 17, the disciples are, are, are still confused. They haven't got it yet. And from the, the disciples, these people, some of whom have been used as in Mark 6 to, to be sent out to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, if some of these guys are still confused, I imagine the Pharisees and the scribes have completely missed what Jesus is saying. 
But they ask for further explanation. And Jesus again gives them the explanation from verse 18 onward. He says the same thing, but uh, in a slightly different way. The stuff you put in your mouth and goes down into your gut, that doesn't make you unclean before God. No, what makes you unclean is what's already in our hearts. From the heart we find, and this this is a confronting list of things. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And that there is a conclusion to Jesus' lesson here in Mark 7. And if we're being honest about examining our own hearts and seeing how we compare to this list of things that make us defiled before God, it's not a hopeful place to conclude, is it? We just stop at the first one there. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. Right there, I think we all fail. There's some specific things that Jesus goes on to talk about, but I think just that one there we've failed, and we go on, I think we've failed it more than just that one. It's challenging, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. This is meant to make us uncomfortable. Now, if we didn't know what happened next, we wouldn't be feeling particularly hopeful right now. If we didn't fully understand why Jesus came, it's not a particularly hopeful place to finish because who here hasn't struggled with even just one of those things? None of us. We've all struggled. And that one struggle is enough. Just one evil thought is enough to leave us defiled before God. But what we are meant to realize, what Mark has been building for us, is a realization of a few different things. Firstly, that no amount of tradition can sort out the problem of our hearts. No amount of tradition and doing things the right way can sort out the problem we all have with our hearts. We cannot deal with our own mess ourselves is another thing we see here. So where do we look? Well, even without knowing that the cross is on the horizon for Jesus, Mark has shown us so much compelling stuff about Jesus already. We have to be looking at him to have any sense of hope. Because... Mark is saying we are all sinners. But you go back about five chapters in Mark's gospel and what did Jesus do? He said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And to prove your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. To show everyone that I have the power to forgive 
sins. And you know what happened? The paralyzed man got up and walked out of there. His sins were forgiven. So we have a blessed vantage point in history to say we need Jesus to go to the cross. We needed him to die on the cross. But even his disciples, there is still a sense of hopefulness for them. Mark has presented us with a compelling figure to follow and to believe in. One who has provided tangible evidence that he is our only hope. And we look at that list of things there. Those evil things that come out of their heart, there's a whole range of things there. We go, maybe we need specialised doctors for each one of those. I was taught by my younger brother the word panacea, a cure for all injuries and ailments. That is Jesus. For all of those things, he is the cure. So we look to him. We don't look to our traditions to save ourselves. We look only to Jesus. And while we might realise our deficiencies, that is okay because our hope is not us, our hope is Christ. So remember that. Remember that hope. Remember that hope of one who can wash us, who did wash us, who died for us, who took on himself the penalty that we should have paid. Mark is showing us the suffering servant, the one who would do it all for us. So do not neglect him. Don't think we can make it on our own. Turn to him more and more every day. We desperately need him. And he's been given. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this passage and we consider it further going into the rest of the day and into the week, we pray, Lord God, that you would keep us from any sense of pride that we might have that we are better than the Pharisees and the scribes. Grant us humility before you. Continue to, as uncomfortable as it is for us, remind us of those areas where we need to improve, where we need to repent of sin and help us to not do this in hopelessness, but may we always run to the foot of the cross, that place where forgiveness was won, where the price was paid, and we now have forgiveness and life eternal because of that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song.